Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is Jan Bartlow for Tuesday Home Time and we're only two minutes late but it was well worthwhile. Today, Nautilus Minerals, deep sea mining project. It might be falling into a deep hole. I'll be speaking with Helen Rosenbaum, who's the campaign coordinator for the deep sea mining campaign. Why Venezuela is in a financial crisis with Jim McElroy, who's a socialist activist who has lived and worked in Venezuela. And C and Low are two Brazilians living here in Melbourne, they're talking about the past, the present and the future, an uncertain future for Brazil. But first, let's hear from Mr. Nicholas McClellan. In other words, Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher. And um, this is his first time for 2019. Our illustrious Prime Minister took off to Vanuatu and Fiji. Smoke and mirrors, you call it, in many aspects. The Morrison government, recognising that its days are numbered, is trying to present itself as active and engaged in the Pacific. Over the last year, there's been a lot of paranoia, which is pumped up by the conservative think tanks, the conservative media, about Chinese advances in the region, that China is creating diplomatic relations with lots of Pacific countries, that Chinese corporations are investing around the region, and indeed the trade with China is is outpacing Australia's within the Pacific Islands, and all of that's true. But our national security state are um, concerned uh, that this area to the north and the east of Australia is an area that's always been based on strategic denial, keeping out official enemies, um, stopping the presence, strategic, military, economic, in our neighbouring region. And so the spooks, the soldiers, uh, the uh, think tanks are all anxious that China is building good relations with our neighbours and providing a lot of investment and uh, finance capital for infrastructure, for development, for other activities. So in 2016, Malcolm Turnbull, remember him? He pledged at the Pacific Islands Forum in 2016 that Australia would step up in the region. There's this sort of acknowledgement that Australia's dropped the ball and allowed the Chinese to move in which is nonsense. Australia is the biggest aid and uh, trade partner in the Pacific. Um, it has a military network across the region. China only gives uh, about 8% of the aid to the region, whereas Australia is the largest aid donor in the region. So, you know, you need to keep a sense of perspective about this. But they're anxious that what was traditionally an ANZUS lake managed by Washington, by Canberra, by Wellington, is now seeing new players. Uh, Morrison, following in the footsteps of Turnbull, is uh, trying to put some figures on the table, money on the table, to uh, show that Australia is stepping up in the region. And so his visit to Vanuatu and to Fiji is part of a broader push with a number of uh, decisions. And it was interesting, he gave a major speech in November last year, you know, outlining what steps the Morrison government would take towards the Pacific. And it was interesting that it was at uh, Laverick Army Barracks in Townsville, now, that's the army base that hosts the 3rd Brigade, which is the troops that are used for regional deployments in the Asia-Pacific region. 
Um, they're the ones who are sent out, um, whether for disasters or for, for invasions, um, for military deployments like Ramsey and the Solomon Islands and so on. The Morrison government stepping up was outlined uh, at an army base, and that sort of symbolises where Canberra's head is at at the moment. Did he find a Chinese army base in Vanuatu? No, and this was part of the beat-up of the whole situation. Last year, the Defence and um, National Security Correspondent for the City Morning Herald, a guy called David Rowe, wrote a series of stories in April and May 2018, firstly claiming that the uh, Chinese were in discussions with uh, the Vanuatu government about uh, uh, a military base on the island of Espirito Santo at Luganville, um, where the Chinese have funded construction of a wharf um, and the allegation is that that's the first step in building a naval base. He also wrote stories saying that the Chinese were trying to use the landing strip on Howe Atoll in French Polynesia to militarise the Pacific, which is a certain irony because Howe Atoll was the staging point for the French nuclear testing at Mururo and Fangatofa Atolls. There is a very long airstrip there built by the French military so that planes flying from Paris could stop off on the way to Muroa and the planes that got contaminated by the mushroom clouds were also washed down into Howe Lagoon. Um, so the militarisation of Howe began a long time before the Chinese got there, but let's not get into history. And this is nonsense. I mean, the Vanuatu government instantly denied that they were involved in discussions with the Chinese about a military base. They pointed out that the wharf in Luganville is smaller than the wharf in Fiji or the wharf in Tonga or, indeed, the port of Darwin, which has been leased by a Chinese corporation for 99 years. Thank you, Andrew Robb, who, on leaving Parliament, former Trade Minister, became a consultant for Landbridge, the company involved in this whole operation of leasing the port of Darwin, which the Americans were anxious with their, their marines rotate through the port of Darwin on the way to uh, their base in the Northern Territory. So the Vanuatu government quite rightly pointed out the hypocrisy of the Australian situation, well, Australia is happy for Chinese investment in certain areas, but there's a, a growing concern about Chinese potential control of telecommunications, and so Australia has agreed to fund uh, new submarine internet cables to Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea, linking Australia, Solomons and PNG, uh, instead of the Chinese corporation Huawei. And uh, Australia has banned Huawei from investing in uh, uh, 5G technology, even though they're a world leader in that technology within Australia. Quite so, an obsession, isn't it? Well, there's, there's, you know, the Chinese state is a, a major imperialist power and, uh, um, you know, the Chinese have got a lot of human rights abuses to, uh, uh, to talk about, which they don't want to talk about. So it's a legitimate discussion. But it should be based on something more than supposition. And what was interesting, of course, was that the, when David Rowe ran all these stories in April last year... Ironically, Vanuatu's foreign minister, Ralph Reganvanu, that very week was at the non-aligned movement meeting, Baku in Azerbaijan. And Vanuatu's been a non-aligned nation since 1983. It's refused to support military activities by any power, and there are no military bases in Vanuatu. Indeed, the whole territory of Vanuatu is nuclear-free. When Father Walter Lini gained independence in 1980, one of the first foreign policy decisions by the government of Vanuatu was to declare itself nuclear-free. So here you've got a non-aligned, nuclear-free nation with no military bases and no army of its own being accused of setting up Chinese bases.
So there's a certain amount of projection going on from, from the security state people in Canberra who are paranoid about this. And one of the interesting things about the so-called step-up into the Pacific is that it's being framed through the security prism. One of the things that uh, Prime Minister Morrison announced last November during his Labrack Army Base speech was that they would set up a new office of the Pacific within DFAT, and this is supposedly to promote what they call whole-of-government coordination to get foreign affairs, talking to immigration, talking to others, and so on. But what that's going to mean is that they'll be seconding staff from other departments into this office. So the Attorney General's office that's involved in money laundering, tracking and things like that, and terrorism, from Home Affairs, this new super ministry created by Peter Dutton and Mike Pizzullo, the Secretary of Home Affairs, a well-known anti-China hawk. It'll be people from the Department of Defence, from the spook agencies, ASIS, ASIO, uh, ASD and so on. So what this Office of the Pacific is going to be is full of spooks and soldiers and security state people who have a particular view of the world. And they don't have a development view of the world. They don't want to address the development demands that are coming out of our neighbours, which are often least developed countries. Countries like the Solomon Islands is a least developed country, small island developing states. They face particular development challenges. But if the Office of the Pacific has seconded all these people from other security departments... Um, that's going to really change Australia's perspective of what's going on. And, you know, the Pacific governments are quite open. They say, look, we're happy to deal with other players, with the Chinese, with the Indonesians, with uh, the Koreans, with the Indians, with many other players, not just China, in the region, simply because the ANZUS allies, Australia, New Zealand, the United States and France, are not addressing our core needs for development, for infrastructure, for poverty alleviation, and most especially for addressing the adverse effects of climate change. Is it known how much money they're pumping into this office? The office itself is a bureaucratic thing, but but Morrison's put $3 billion on the table. The first $2 billion is in a new... Uh, it's a commitment, not, the money's not spent yet, but it's a commitment towards a thing called the Australian Infrastructure Financing Facility for the Pacific... A-I-F-F-P, you know, great acronym. And part of that's because China created the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And as the name suggests, it's a, it's a funding mechanism for infrastructure investment. And for the Pacific, where there's a need for roads and wharves and ports and other, you know, infrastructure, telecommunications, energy, all these areas, um, there's a lack of capital investment. And so China, through the A the Infrastructure Investment Bank or through its Exim Bank, its Export-Import Bank, or through private corporations, state-owned corporations, has been investing in these sort of projects. So you've got Chinese companies in Fiji building roads, for example. Um, you've had parliament houses or sports stadiums or other big projects built with Chinese money, Chinese labour um, across the Pacific Islands. And Australia and New Zealand, Japan, for a long time, didn't do that sort of work. Um, they left it at the World Bank to fund those sort of big projects. So the Chinese are simply another alternative source of capital for small island states and one that they've seized upon. And so not only states, but New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Samoa, Vanuatu have all joined uh, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative. There's a global infrastructure program spread right across and mainly focused on the stands, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, on the Middle East, even on Europe. 
and the Pacific's a bit of a shot. Pacific Islands are a bit of a sideshow, but nonetheless, a little bit of Chinese money in the Pacific goes a long way. And so you've seen the Belt and Road, a number of our neighbours, including New Zealand, signing up to Belt and Road, and Canberra's refused to do so until now. So this new two billion infrastructure facility that Morrison is, is proposing is basically an alternative that the Pacific could come to Australia to get money for infrastructure rather than take it from uh, the Chinese. You can imagine the Pacific nations just sitting back and having a good laugh at all this while they fight between themselves where they're going to build this or they're not going to build that. Absolutely. And look, we've seen Australia shift its development priorities based on this sort of geopolitics. The classic example was in 2008 when Kevin Rudd shut down the asylum seeker centres that the Howard government had had in Nauru and Manus. Julia Gillard wanted to reopen it. And, and the, the negotiations that happened at that time with Papua New Guinea, Peter O'Neill, saw that the Australians were desperate to reopen Manus, having closed it for a few years. And so he negotiated real hardball. And Australia, through AusAid, its development agency, which existed at that time, since been abolished by Tony Abbott, our development agency said, we want to do primary education in PNG. The most important thing is to get many kids into primary school as possible. So we didn't fund universities. But Peter O'Neill said, we want a big university in Lai, the second biggest city of Papua New Guinea. You need to rebuild the Unitech in Lai. And it's a multi-million dollar project. And he got it. And he got it. So they ditched all the stuff. Oh, we only do primary education because Peter O'Neill had Australia over a barrel. And what we're seeing is that the small guys in the Pacific are leveraging this geopolitical clash between the United States and China with Australia, Japan and India joining into the containment policies that Donald Trump is proposing against China and the Pacific's leveraging that for all they can. And they're playing the China card in a way and they're happy. If China gives us money, fine. If the Australians give us money, that's fine. We're still getting the same infrastructure. There's a lot of concern about what are the conditions behind that money, and that's the, that's an important technical debate, but in the bald sense. But let's not get too uh, gloy-eyed about what Canberra's doing. As well as the money for this infrastructure facility, Morrison announced another billion dollars for the EFIC, the Export Finance Investment Corporation. Over what period is this Doesn't money? say. So, you know, no, and we all know that Morrison's going to be gone in six months or less. Um, and so, you know, this is all money that Penny Wong and Richard Miles and Bill Shorten are going to be spending, not the Morrison government. But there's a certain bipartisan commitment. The ALP supports all this. Um, but what that money is, is that that's for Australian businesses, you know, supporting Australians to invest in the Pacific. Now... People in Australia might think, oh, that's a billion dollars. You know, Pauline Hanson's going to rail against these money going to the Pacific. But the Pacific's saying, hang on, this is money going to Australian businesses to operate in the Pacific. What about Pacific businesses that want to operate? And the Turnbull government created the PESA Plus Free Trade Agreement. And two major economies in the region, Papua New Guinea and Fiji, have refused to sign on to the PESA Treaty because they don't like a number of the conditions that are in it. And one of the things they've been talking about is protecting infant industries. Both Papua New Guinea and Fiji have got economies with manufacturing industry, with small, you know, export industries in certain areas. Uh, Fiji exports biscuits and PNG's got quite a vibrant manufacturing sector related to the mining and oil and gas, so on. And they don't want Australian taxpayers, subsidising Australian companies to come in and override 
roughshod over their own small businesses. It would be great if Morrison was putting a billion dollars on the table for Pacific businesses, but he's putting a billion dollars on the table for Australian businesses. People in Australia may think that's good, but it doesn't go down that well in parts of the Pacific. What was the reaction at the time? Well, people were saying, you know, this is, this is really Australia looking after itself. And so I think we're looking at these sorts of things where you've got the whole security framing, where there's a whole lot of stuff happening around security. You've got these sort of infrastructure projects which are, are really the benefit of an Australian corporations going to do the infrastructure rather than Chinese corporations. And you've got this. And when he was at APEC, the big summit last year in November, hosted by Papua New Guinea, Morrison said that the new infrastructure projects, and I'm quoting, have to be bankable. We follow the discipline when it comes to infrastructure projects, and that's why the sort of projects we've been getting involved with are projects that have revenue streams as well. So we want projects that are bankable, that give returns, that have revenue streams. So if you're going to build a road, you build a tollway. And this is the whole transurban model of, of tolling that we have in Australia, where you know, to use CityLink, to use EastLink, to use these things, you have to pay. Or if we put in water and electricity supplies, you have to have a revenue stream. So you want user pays, so people have to pay for their water or their electricity and so on. The sort of projects that they're talking about are bankable ones that benefit Australian corporations and have a revenue stream coming back. And the obvious question is for people in least developed countries, in poor countries, is this the sort of best model? If we're going to do energy systems... Why don't we do decentralised energy systems like with solar panels that go quite well in rural villages rather than centralised electricity systems that have a revenue stream? So this is just money flowing to Australian corporations. And people in the Pacific go, oh, yeah, OK. And then the question is, why should Australian corporations? Why not have Chinese corporations? So the whole strategic problem that is faced by the Australian government about the sort of conditions that they're putting on investments in the region are still there. Even though they're saying, oh, we're stepping up, we're offering all this money, we're putting all this money on the table, people in the Pacific are not dumb. They see that it's related to Australia's security needs and Australia's corporate needs. This is Tuesday Home Time on 3CR, and you are listening to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And the security stuff is very clear. Morrison's talking about an Australian army team going around doing training in the region. He's talking about bringing Pacific... Uh, military and police officers to intelligence training within Australia. He's talking about massive funding for the Vanuatu police, building up a military base in Fiji at Black Rock, which is a peacekeeping operations base for Fiji, but has obvious implications. Once again, that's all very well and good that Australia will provide security training rather than the Chinese, but for many citizens, for many journalists, for many human rights activists, they look at all this money going into training the Fiji police or the Fiji army, or the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, and they think, hang on, Bougainville's moving towards a referendum next year on independence, and Australia's funding the Papua New Guinea Defence Force? Fiji's had a series of coups, and we're funding the police? Now, this is bipartisan. In November last year, Richard Miles, who's the Shadow Defence Minister, probably going to be a senior minister within the shortened Labor government, said that we should be more engaged, that the coalition had dropped the ball on the Pacific, and that we needed to build links... And that the cornerstone, his words, the cornerstone of that engagement is strengthening the military and police forces of the region. So the first thing that Richard Miles is talking about, about the Labor Party's engagement with the region, is strengthening the defence forces. 
Now, you talk to ordinary people in the Pacific and they say, well, that's not the first thing we're interested in. That's where the key silence comes in in all this climate change. And you may have seen muted comments from the Fiji government that were pretty low-key, but the point was made. The greatest security threat to most Pacific Island countries is not the Chinese, it's not internal tension, it's climate change. And the reaction to that speech? Well, what can what the Morrison government say? Well, um, what did they say? Well, they said, well, we're committed $200 million to, towards this. But I'm sorry, Malcolm Turnbull in 2016 announced $200 million a year for five years for climate action in the Pacific. But is that climate action or is that adaptation well, to what's already happening? It's adaptation to what's already happening. But there's, everyone knows that Australia's targets are too weak to address the changes that are coming. Everyone knows that there's a bipartisan commitment towards maintaining and even extending the export of fossil fuels from Australia, the whole debate about Adani and the failure of the Labor government to say that they'll shut down Adani and keep the Galilee Basin closed to new coal mining operations. Those sort of concerns are very clearly expressed right across the Pacific. And indeed what's striking is last year at the Pacific Islands Forum, which was held in Nauru in September, the forum leaders, including Australia, signed off on a thing called the Boy Declaration. Boy is a district within Nauru, and so it was named to the place where it was signed. And the Boy Declaration says that we want a more expansive vision of security to take on human security, development security, security for women, security for the community, not just traditional state-centred security. And it's also a provision, once again, which Australia signed off on, saying that the single greatest security threat to the livelihoods, well-being and future of the people of the Pacific is climate change. The single greatest threat to well-being and livelihoods for peoples in the Pacific is climate change. So climate change is a security threat. And when Pacific leaders, Pacific Island leaders, met with um, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, last September in New York, they said, we want the UN Security Council to have a policy on climate change and security. There's not just an environment issue, it's not just an economic issue, it's a security issue. It's about our very national existence, the security of our whole nation. They want a special rapporteur appointed by the UN Secretary General on climate and security. And they've been lobbying hard to get this onto the agenda of the ANZUS allies. And indeed, even the Americans, and certainly the New Zealanders, are way ahead of on this. Last year, New Zealand issued a public policy document on climate change and security for the New Zealand Defence Force. Um, the Americans have such a document. And Scott Ludlam, before he got turfed out of the Senate, called a Senate inquiry on this issue, on the, the implications for national security of climate change in Australia. And our government departments got up and said, well, we don't really have policy on this. And the inquiry recommended that they should do so, that they should appoint someone in bureaucracy in the Defence Department or in the Prime Minister's office to coordinate climate change and security implications. And the coalition senators on the committee refused to accept it. The climate denial that typifies successive governments, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison, the coalition senators refused to even appoint a bureaucrat to look at this question within the Australian bureaucracy. So here you've got the Americans and the New Zealanders, who are no, you know, progressives on these questions, 
saying we have to look at the implications for our defence forces, like all our naval bases are on the coast and sea level rise is going to affect our naval bases, so shouldn't we be thinking about what, whether to build the wharves? Yeah. You know, it's not rocket science. I mean, everyone realises that this is happening, but the success of our coal industry and our mining sector to destroy several governments over climate policy, direct action's gone. You know, the National Energy Guarantee is gone. Carbon tax gone. You know, the, the fossil fuel industry in Australia has successfully destroyed four prime ministerships on this question. And Morrison's not going to go out on a limb and actually do anything. But surely other governments have also got fossil fuel industries and they can see the light. Why can't Australia? Well, it's one of the great successes of the Australian legal system where the Labor Party is by and large kowtowed to this as well and we've seen a situation. Labor is at least talking about, you know, the National Energy Guarantee, but really that's, that's nothing. And you only have to step outside Australia into the Pacific to realise the debate's completely different. For example, most Australians would not know that the UN put out just before the climate negotiations in Poland a major report on 1.5 degrees. Now those figures don't mean much to most Australians, but there's been a whole technical debate about what's the threshold for dangerous or very dangerous adverse effects from climate change. And long time people talked about two degrees. Um, but science is telling us that really already we've got nearly one degree of warming. Um, that's too much already. And so the UN, after huge political battles, commissioned a report on 1.5 degrees, which came out in October. And it's chilling reading, saying that, that really the tipping point towards long-term irreversible effects is not 2 degrees or even 1.5. It's much lower than that. We're almost at those tipping points. And many climate activists have been talking about this climate emergency. Now, the Pacific's been saying this since 1988. The Pacific's saying, hang on, those low-lying atolls, many of our countries are going to go early with sea level rise, with uh, extreme weather events, with effects on agriculture and water and sanitation and so on. So they've been campaigning for 1 degrees, 1.5 degrees for a long, long time. And Australia has actively resisted that. And the failure of our media to report on this major UN report took years to produce thousands of scientists involved. And the Ian Plymers and the climate deniers sort of deny it and deride it and so on. But there's a lot of work gone into the science of this stuff. For the Pacific, they've been campaigning around this. A small symbol, I was reporting at the forum last year, and it was really telling. Every year, the smaller island states have a caucus beforehand. These are the eight, like half the members, nearly half the members of the forum. And these are the little guys, Tuvalu with 11,000 people, Nauru with about 11,000, you know, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Niue, and so on. Niue's only got 1,500 people, Tokelau. And their needs are particular and different to the bigger countries like Papua New Guinea, which has got 8, 10 million people and so on. And they always demand really urgent action, stronger action on climate change. And every year, the bigger forum meeting simply notes their outcomes of their meeting, saying, good on you, fellas. Thanks, pat on the head. Thank you for saying you're in trouble. We hear you. This year, or 2018, for the first time, the the full forum endorsed rather than noted. It's a minor bureaucratic joke in one sense, but it's a sign that the big guys like Papua New Guinea and Fiji and New Zealand and so on get it, that the demands of the small island states are right, that two degrees is not an adequate tripwire, 1.5 is not an adequate tripwire. You have to go 
lower towards zero. And there was one country that put qualifications on that endorsement. So of the 18 members of the forum, only one wouldn't fully endorse the call for urgent action for new targets, for stronger targets at the global climate negotiations. And at the press conference, I asked Prime Minister Sopoyan of Tuvalu whether he'd name the country that expressed qualifications. He said, oh, we hope people would notice that. You're very observant, he said. I said, yeah. And I asked him. He wouldn't, wouldn't say the name. So I said, does it begin with A? And he laughed and he said, capital A. Since then, I've had New Zealand diplomats saying, it's not Aotearoa. We all know who it is, that Australia went into the negotiations and everyone recognised that climate change is a serious existential threat to small island developing nations in the Pacific, our closest neighbours. And so when Scott Morrison goes parading around the region saying we're stepping up in the region, people in the Pacific just laugh. So this is the government that's talking about Adani. This is the government that's got a 23% reduction target. Now, Labor, for all their faults, and there are many, is at least talking about much stronger targets and much quicker targets. And Penny Wong um, said, you can't have a Pacific policy without a climate policy. It was a good line in a speech she gave last October. So Labor at least gets that this is an issue for our neighbours. Whether they're going to do anything about that issue is, is a different question, and I'm concerned that there's a real bipartisan commitment between Labor and Liberal towards Pacific policy. Most of the things that Morris announced, this infrastructure bank, um, the money for EFIC, the money for Australian businesses, the Office of the Pacific, the security engagement with police, intelligence training, the deployment of an army force around the region, I suspect that Labor will keep 99% of that stuff. They'll certainly do more on climate than Morrison, but that wouldn't be hard. And what's revealing is that Penny Wong's talked about increasing the aid budget, which is at the lowest level since 1974 as a ratio of national income, the lowest level ever since 1974. It won't be hard to look good by putting a couple hundred million dollars on the table and saying we're increasing the aid budget. But Labor at its national conference refused to name a target with a timetable. They've said eventually we'll get to 0.5% of gross national income. We're down at 0.2% at the moment. So that's a good commitment that they're aiming for 0.5%. What's the timetable? Not a word from the Labor Party. And anyone, anytime anyone's spoken to Penny Wong, anyone out there who meets Penny Wong, ask her, what's your timetable? Increase the aid budget. And... They won't answer. More importantly, what's the commitment to climate finance? The government, Morrison government, said that they will not commit funds to the Green Climate Fund, which is the global mechanism for funding. Here you have Donald Trump refusing to do the same thing. The Obama administration pledged $3 billion, which is about 30% of the current tally for the Green Climate Fund. And only a billion dollars got out the door before Obama finished. Trump has refused to give the remaining two billion dollars to the Green Climate Fund. And Scott Morrison says we won't give money to these multilateral funds. We'd rather spend it ourselves. But see, the Green Climate Fund has got a board that's 50-50 developed countries and developing countries. So the 24 board members, 12 are from OECD countries, United States, Australia, New Zealand and so on. Are from developing countries, including two seats for small island developing states. So the 
you know, the thing is structured to ensure that the whole humanity is represented, not just the OECD country, not just the powerful industrialised countries, but least developed countries have spaces. Small island developing states have bases. And small island developing states make up a quarter of the membership of the UN General Assembly. They just don't have any economic, military, political clout. But they're using what leverage they do have to say, you know, we want a better deal. And that's what we've seen with the relationship with China and Taiwan and India and Korea. People are saying the deal we're getting out of Canberra and Washington is shit. They're saying, you know, Donald Trump is withdrawing from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. There have been members of the Morrison government calling for the withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement. So why would our Pacific neighbours want to ally with a neighbour like that? Well, indeed. That's journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And the time at 3CR and right around the east coast of Australia, I believe, is 4.35. And just to let people know, if they don't already know the ways that you can listen to programs such as Tuesday Home Time, you can be listening on whatever you're listening to now, which could be an old analogue phone, which is 8.55am. You could be listening digital, which is 3CR. You could be live streaming, which means that you're listening to the program as it goes to air on your computer at 3cr.org.au stroke streaming. Or you can listen to audio on demand, which means that the program stays in the computer for a week and then is replaced by the next week's program. And you can get that by the same webpage, 3cr.org.au slash your program's name and then there's a podcast where you can have the program sent to your computer each week and you can listen to it whenever you feel like it and that's 3cr.org.au slash podcast so no excuse for not listening to 3CR Don't sing me an anthem cause you don't know the words words are hard to remember when they mean nothing at all To the hearts who are still waiting For their voice to be heard Don't sing me your anthem When your anthem's absurd Every year 3CR marks Invasion Day with special programming that gives voice to ongoing struggle for land justice in this country. Shut up for justice! Shut up for truth! Shut up for indigenous... Our shows cover the real history of Australia cross to local events and rallies around town and celebrate the survival and culture of Aboriginal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Abolish Australia Day. Tune in to 3CR on Saturday, January 26th, coverage of the 2019 Invasion Day events and issues. This is David Rivickson. You are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. I've been reporting on the project to mine the seabed off the coast of PNG for a number of years now. And in 2019, there is still no certainty that the project will get off the ground. 
Looking back to 2018, it was touted as the year for Nautilus Minerals. Now it looks as if 2019 will be the end. To look back on 2018 and to talk about that possible future, I spoke with Dr Helen Rosenbaum, the Deep Sea Mining Campaign Coordinator. Helen, the project has been granted just another lifeline, but finance is not the only obstacle the project is facing. Just looking back on 2018, definitely not a good year for the project, setback after setback. Oh, over the past year, Nautilus has just kind of limped along from one disaster after the other in terms of their own finances. In March, two uh, shareholders who were their only independent shareholders, quickly accountable companies, divested from them, which left them with only their two major shareholders, which are these two companies. One's a money family-owned company and the other one owned by a Russian oligarch, privately owned, very unaccountable and untouchable for civil society perspective companies. These two companies are now left holding the can, along with the Papua New Guinea government, who also has 15% stake in this um, failing company. These two major shareholders have propped up the company over the last year by a series of small loans in the hopes that they will find an investor to give them some serious money, which they badly need to become operational. But the last catastrophe they experienced just before Christmas was loss of their project support vessel. So in their model of mining, the project support vessel is the centerpiece. It's the, the vessel that makes them independent of any kind of conflicts that might occur on land. It's um, where the slurry from the mine sites will be piped up to. And, and then will be taken off from to go to, well, their plan was to offer their minerals to China. And it was all going to happen out at sea, giving them a very flexible and mobile way of uh, mining the sea floor. And that's the model that they are very, were very excited about and used to sell the idea to investors. And for a little while, the world was actually quite excited by this brave new kind of model of mining where you can just sort of float about on the surface and, and go from one site to another and try to keep communities that you're having minimal impact because each site is, uh, mine site would be small in itself. But um, they had plans to visit, you know, many such uh, sites, even just in Papua New Guinea in the Bismarck Sea where the first site, Solar One, is located. So without being able to make payments on the cons- to finalise the construction of their project support vessel, it was sold off to an Indian company. So they've lost that vessel and uh, it's hard to see that they would ever be able to, you know, start it all off again. The world has really lost interest in financing Nautilus. I think this latest, their failure to be able to repay the loans to their major shareholders, those loans were due on January the 8th, just indicates that it's an unbankable project. That's not really surprising because right from the outset it's been a speculative experiment. 
Nautilus never did the kind of routine feasibility studies that many companies normally do to build a business case. So what was going to be found down at the bottom and what quantities exactly and how much profit was going to be made was always, you know, completely speculative. The concern of local communities hasn't really been so much the speculation around the financial aspects, but in a similar way, the environmental impacts were totally speculative as well. And in their formal documents that Nautilus lodges with the Canadian um, authorities, they're quite upfront about that, about the risks, environmental risks, saying that the Cold War One is uh, a grand experiment, really, and that um, we'll suck it and see, and um, see what happens when we mine this area. So that's what the local communities have been protesting right from the start, that they don't want to be the guinea pigs for this experiment. What's the point of getting another loan if they haven't got a vessel? Yes, I mean, the Nautilus um, media update uh, states that it's to give them an opportunity to look at how they might restructure themselves. So, yes, it, it, you know, they need tens of millions of dollars to actually become operational. This last little bit of um, loan uh, was $500,000. So one doesn't really know what the point is. And I, I think many of the small shareholders which there are several who have just kind of, you know, thought this might be a good idea to invest in. Um, I think a lot of them are sort of wondering what, what the point is and um, saying goodbye to their money, really. When you think of the disruptions and the, the damage to the, the sea environment, the, the living environment of the sea in the last decades... You just wonder, this is just going to, if it goes ahead, it's going to be another nail in the coffin for the oceans. There's been several reports in the last um, few years that have come out um, by different organisations, WWF and the IUCN, that basically say if we continue business as usual with the oceans, we're going to run out of resilience. Uh, the oceans have been amazingly resilient. But the, the you know the, to, um, not to trying to be too cute, but the tide is turning, and we're going to see collapses of ocean ecosystems if we continue business as usual. And that's not even factoring in seabed mining. Those those studies haven't factored that source of disruption in yet. So not only do we not need seabed mining, we need to do a whole lot of things differently about how we use um, the resources of the ocean and, and the pollution we put into it. Of course, it's not the people living in the local areas that are doing all the damage. It's the, the First World or other companies or huge fishing vessels that are actually causing the, the breakdown of the fishing. Yes, and often um, leaving, uh, well, like the communities that we work with in Papua New Guinea uh, who rely on, you know, fishing, um, local level fishing for subsistence and their local economy, you know, leaving them without a source of food and without a source of income. And there are also, you know, island and coastal peoples who are facing increases in uh, sea level, so they're losing land. In, in a way that, you know, is very palpable, you know, and real to them. You, you can go walking around an island with some of these people and they'll show you where 
10 years ago they used to be able to grow their vegetable gardens and now it's underwater. And also this push to get more and more murals, whether it's on land or on sea, it's insatiable it seems. Surely there has to be a time when humans say enough is enough. Well, in Europe and um, and the UK, which is separate to Europe almost these days, <laughs> the, the conversation about circular economies is starting to become a little more mainstream. I think we're a long way away from that still in Australia. It's still at the fringes of our awareness. But just last year, the European Parliament put a... Uh, resolution to the European Commission asking for uh, a moratorium on seabed mining and also a review into the need for seabed mining as a source of minerals and an evaluation of what recycling the waste we have already stockpiled, usually in developing countries, but recycling the minerals in that waste could offer to meet world demand. And just last week, um, the U- UK House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee released a report on sustainable oceans, which um, is a great report, actually, and I'd recommend people to go and have a look at it if they just want to Google it. And there's a section on it, on seabed mining. There's also really good sections on plastics as well and other forms of stress to the ocean. That the section on seabed mining definitely says the economic case for um, seabed mining is yet to be made in comparison to the economic case of recycling because, you know, that, those kind of valuations just haven't been done. And we do have huge stockpiles of waste which are a problem a health problem for people trying to recycle minerals from them, metals from them in third world countries because they're not doing it safely and a waste problem for us and, um, you know, the first world who, who dump these wastes. You know, it would be a very sensible win-win solution to look first towards recycling the waste we've already generated and then see you know, what we what we might need in terms of raw minerals. But, you know, really the time for mining virgin minerals, you know, should be over. Interestingly, Apple has um, made a commitment to not source virgin minerals in the future and they're starting to look at ways in which they can use minerals that are recycled. And just the unknown consequences of this deep sea mining because it, it really is deep sea and, and, and the number of, I can't think of the right word, creatures and plants and everything that would be impacted by this. Yeah, well, the, yes, it's complete unknown and, you know, the precautionary principle would, would should dictate that in a situation like this where we don't know the impacts that we hold off from doing something like that, you know, deep sea mining, we, we don't know the impacts at local level even, like for, um, that each individual mine site might experience, and we have no idea about how long it might take for those mine sites to recover if, and what they might recover to, you know, how similar that might be to what was there originally. And we don't know what happens when several mine sites in an area of the ocean 
are impacted and, you know, what the cumulative effect of, of that might be. And we don't know, we don't know nothing really about it all. We don't know what happens in terms of relationship between organisms that live at the deep sea and organisms um, that we are more familiar with, you know, closer to the surface of the sea. We, you know, fish and um, play with in terms of, you know, dolphins, etc. But there has been research that has found evidence that dolphins, sharks and whales do dive, you know, several kilometres under the water. So we don't know exactly what they're doing there. They could be feeding, they could be doing something else. <laughs> and so, yeah, those interrelationships, are, we don't understand them. So we don't know what's going to be affected. And um, I was just reading in the UK House of Commons report that there are areas under uh, exploration licence that are the equivalent of world heritage sites on land. But because they're, you know, kilometres under the sea, it's, it's not widely known and um, they're not, uh, they're apparently unvalued. So um, there's a lot, a lot at stake here, really. And it's being driven by a small sector of industry without much information. And the likelihood of something going wrong so far, so deep in the oceans, where it's, in a sense, out of sight, out of mind. Exactly, and even even being able to do an environmental impact assessment plea because the International Seabed Authority who is issuing the exploration licences in the common area of the deep sea has required, made it a requirement that EISs are conducted for exploration, but it's um, not really possible to do an EIS for something that's two, three, four kilometres under the water. So, yes, monitoring it will be pretty much impossible. And given that some of these mines have been sponsored by uh, countries that are third world countries, and some of them are in the national jurisdictions of third world countries, like the Solwara One mine that our campaign is focused on, those countries don't have the resources to even monitor mining and other resource extraction activities on land, let alone kilometres under the sea. And, um, yes. So if this one gets knocked off, can it set the precedent? Well... What we're noticing is that as more scientific information comes to light, there seems to be a recognition around the world that hydrothermal vents uh, are particularly unique uh, in deep sea environments. And that, that is true. And that's what's at, that is what is at the uh, site of the Solwara 1, proposed Solwara 1 mine in Papua New Guinea. What they want to mine are the minerals that have been emitted from these hydrothermal vents over millions, thousands and millions of years. And, um, and they do support very unique ecosystems. They are uh, very unusual environments of extreme heat coming out of the vents with extreme cold water down at the bottom, mixing of unusual chemicals. So the seems to be a recognition that these are you know, particularly special environments and that they should be kept away from. So that could be good news for Papua New Guinea and um, the Solwara One 
prospect and the sort of communities living around um, the Bismarck Sea uh, in terms of, you know, that not going ahead. But we are concerned that, you know, what, what's um, being, what looks like it might be played out here is that uh, we'll leave these ones alone, but the other types of substrate on the seafloor, the metallic crusts and metallic nodules, which occur in different parts of the ocean, we can go for them because they have less impact ecologically. So we're, we're kind of alert to that and there's a particular new player in the Pacific Ocean called Deep Green Minerals and interestingly they've been established by um, some of the same people who were founding members of Nautilus and we think they're probably, you know, we're quite cluey people who realised the writing was on the wall for Nautilus um, several years ago and they jumped ship and formed this new company. And this new company is focusing on nodules and is spinning the line um, quite strenuously that, you know, hydrothermal vents mining, that's bad, but we're, the, we're clean green deep sea mining. And they have a really slick um, public relations messaging ar around that. If listeners were interested in Googling deep green um, minerals websites, they could be quite horrified at what they find there in terms of um, there's been non-sustainable uh, source of deep sea minerals there. What are nodules? Well, they actually look like cricket balls <laughs> and they can vary in size but um, commonly I've seen um, photos of them looking around and um, seen descriptions of them around that size and these round balls of um, kind of composite metals so the model of mining um, proposed for these is it would be less disruptive than what is proposed at the hydrothermal Vince, which is like an open cut mine, what they're suggesting they might be able to do for the nodules is to pluck them out of the ocean basically and somehow bundle them up and take them to the surface. So there would be less excavating, less plumes generated. But still, you know, um, the sites would be the local area would still be flattened and decimated by the equipment used. There would still be plume sediments containing, um, you know, perhaps heavy metals being dispersed. So we still don't know what the impact of, you know, the uncertainties around that are still the same. But they, um, yes, they, they sell them as these um, little balls just waiting for us to come out and pick them up and pluck them and make use of them. In what areas are they focusing on? Oh, well, there's you know, various areas all around the world. The nodules are found on things called um, abyssal plains, which are deep, deep water plains, um, usually sort of deeper than three kilometres under the surface. And the crusts are found on, metal crusts are found on things called sea mounts, which are mountains under the sea. So um, they're in various zones from all around the world. And there's exploration licenses in all of those 
all three, the hydrothermal vents um, and um, the crusts and the nodules have exploration licenses for all three substrates have been uh, let by the International Seabed Authority. Well, it sounds as though there's plenty to keep you occupied for a while, Helen. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yes, because um, we, we are kind of looking forward to seeing the end of, of Nautilus, but um, we'll be then extending our focus to the Pacific more generally and keeping an eye on what deep green resources are up to. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to Dr Helen Rosenbaum, who's the campaign coordinator for the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. It's just coming up to five o'clock. We hail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. Hardly a week goes by without one or other of the corporate media outlets slamming the government of Venezuela for the economic crisis in that country. A crisis which, amongst other things, has seen the many people crossing the borders into both Colombia and Brazil. There can be no doubt that the government of Venezuela has made errors of judgment in running the economy, but little of the problems are sheeted home to the crippling US sanctions and US support for the opposition seeking to bring down the government. Socialist and activist Jim McElroy has been a, a vocal supporter of the Bolivarian Revolution and when I spoke with Jim recently I asked him when it was that he first visited Venezuela. I have uh, travelled there a number of times. In fact the first time was back in 2004 when it was really just a sort of holiday trip in Latin America. But I've had an interest and an involvement in the solidarity movement in Australia going way back, including supporting the Cuban Revolution, uh, the Nicaraguan, the Sandinistas, see, during the 1980s when they were under attack, and generally supporting the Latin American revolutions, which I think are critical to the world situation and have played a leading role over many years. The main time I went to Venezuela was in 2006, where myself and my partner, Coral Winter, we actually lived there for a year. Tell us about that time, what you learnt and what you saw and the hopes that the people had. So 
Well, that was a really eye-opening experience. It's one thing, you know, when you're in a first world country like Australia and can sort of understand uh, theoretically, you know, what happens when a people rise up, particularly in a third world country. But when you live there and see it on a day-to-day basis, it's quite, well, inspiring is the only thing I can say. I mean, we lived in a, a barrio in Caracas called Katia, which is sort of like a pretty much working class. I mean, it's probably not the poorest barrio, but, you know, we live in, with the local people and um, the support for the Chavista revolution was quite palpable. I can give a brief introduction to that if you wish. That In 1998, Hugo Chavez was elected and immediately set about changing the fundamental situation in Venezuela, which was similar to what right throughout Latin America and probably through the third world and dominated by the United States and other imperialist countries, a very rich, tiny class and most of the people living pretty much in poverty, the resources of the country, which are basically oil and have historically been oil, being squandered and ripped off by the wealthy and foreign corporations. That was the situation Chavez faced and he immediately set about not only changing that economic situation but empowering the people so constituent assembly was set up and changes started to be made in all sorts of fields we observed that we observed the communal councils which were established which are local bodies based in the in the barrios people uh, meet and, and raise their issues and, and and are actually supported and funded by the government to carry out local projects that was an enormously important process we saw that firsthand we also saw the social missions which were organisations basically somewhat in order to carry out social welfare programs such as education, health and so on, but quite different to the way it's done in, in, country, in a country like Australia through government departments. These were extra-governmental community-controlled uh, organisations such as the um, Mission Barrio Adentro, which means into the barrios, which was the, the health mission which was essentially, was actually uh, populated with Cuban doctors because the local doctors refused to do it. And they have changed the situation for, for basic health care among the population. The population, like in most third world countries, didn't have access to basic health care. And now they, now they do. Um, the education missions gave primary education to many populations that hadn't had it before, secondary, and right up to the level of tertiary. There's much greater access among the people of Venezuela to tertiary education than there were. One other important mission was the one to do with public housing, which is very relevant to the <laughs> discussion in Australia today. Rather than closing down public housing system, which is what's happening all over Australia, it's been massively expanded. Over 2 million uh, homes have been built in the last 10 years or so, to um, house poor people, but they're, they're, it's public housing that, that the houses are essentially theirs to keep. They're not able to be evicted. At the same time, they're not allowed to sell them either. It, it is public housing, and they're, they're quite good quality houses. And, you know, we've seen them. We saw them when we were there. And this process, this social process, which is called the Bolivarian Revolution, basically was gathering momentum at the time we were there in 2006. But... Of course, many things have happened since then which are challenging the process. What about utilities like gas, electricity, water for the, the poor people? 
those public facilities, of course, you know, as in many countries, particularly third world countries, were, were in poor shape. But they've certainly been improved over the time. But I, I do have to admit that in recent times, you know, there have been serious problems with um, situations of power. One rather unique situation I should point out is that the price of petrol in Venezuela is really low. Uh, so, and possibly one might even say too low, but it's basically subsidised for the population that have become used to that and um, you know, they're not keen on any uh, major increase in the, in the price of petrol, which means that things like... Um, it also means that things like bus fares are quite low. That, that has been the case, but the government is facing a major problem of uh, income from the oil industry. The price of oil, of course, fell in recent years. It is now going up again, which is very good for the coffers of the of the Venezuelan government, and it means they can they make it easier for them to fund the social programs. But, yeah, there is a very high inflation in Venezuela at the moment. You know, there are shortages, but, you know, relatively speaking, the population is still so much better off than they were 20 years ago. And we have to acknowledge that these missions were actual parallel to the government departments who weren't servicing the poor people. Exactly, that's right. So the missions became a kind of alternative government and this is what, in a sense, the basis of the Bolivarian Revolution was the establishment of a, of a sort of a growing alternative government or an, but not just government at the top but at every level. So in a sense the missions were alternative to the local um, government areas and, and uh, the state governments and so on. In many ways, Venezuela, I suppose, on a technical point, has a similar system to Australia. There's, there's local government, there's state government, and there's the, the national government. But the difference being that it's a presidential system, so the president has very strong powers, vis-a-vis the National Assembly, which has been now become dominated by the right wing. They controlled it from a couple of years ago. But what happened was that the new president, President Maduro, after Chavez very sadly died of cancer, much too young, he has revived the Constituent Assembly, which was set up by Chavez in the early days, and that elections to that meant that the Bolivarians have a, have a strong majority there. So really they do have control of the government, but the population is divided. There is a very strong right-wing opposition, but I would say that a, a solid, solid, you know, 40% or so of the population support the Bolivarian process and Maduro. There's a minority that support the right-wing, and then there's a, a whole lot of people in the middle who are sort of somewhat, maybe somewhat demoralised, but certainly not willing to support the right wing at this stage. And of course it's the friends of the right wing or the right wing themselves that control most of the business in Venezuela. That's right. So this is the, I suppose this is the challenge when we look at the future, how is the Venezuelan revolution going to, you know, survive and, and go forward? The problem is that the basic control of industry while some sections of industry have been nationalised and some factories have been taken over by the workers and are already under workers' control. That is still a limited process, so the majority of large industry is still controlled by private owners. And those private owners are closely linked to the United States and the so-called democratic opposition in Venezuela is closely linked to the United States. 
they basically take their orders from the US. At the moment, the big threat is that the US is, is mounting the conditions for a, an attempted coup in Venezuela, and this is this is the real crisis that the country faces in the next uh, short-term period. It's well known that the countries of Latin America and, of course, others in the world are very macho societies. How did you see that playing out in the year you were there and visits since then and how they've been addressing that situation? Yes, it is true that Latin America has a traditionally very strongly chauvinist, male chauvinist-dominated society. Um, the rights of women they have, have already been, always been limited and I have to say that that's partly due to the strong influence of the Catholic Church so that issues like abortion is, is really very much pushed aside. Uh, the feminist movement has grown up in the last um, period and many of the supporters of the feminist movement are also Chavistas, but, uh, Bolivarians, they support the revolution, but they also are very strongly committed to improving women's rights. So it is a big, it is a big struggle. The, the Catholic Church is still very strong. I think right through Latin America, it's been an enormous struggle to try to, you know, to represent the, the rights of women. But certainly in the social area and in the, uh, and also even in the political area, the, the position of women has improved. The number of women ministers and, and people in the government, they're certainly doing a lot better in Venezuela than um, they are in the Liberal Party in Australia. But yeah, it's a slow process. I can say that one of the things we noticed when we were in Venezuela is the considerable number of women involved in the social projects and things like cooperatives in the in the missions and in the in the social movements and in the political movements so they have stepped forward enormously but there's a long way to go that's for sure what have they been able to do to increase food production the fundamental problem of the venezuelan economy is the so-called dutch disease which is the reliance on natural resources and in venezuela's case oil Venezuela basically became dependent on oil probably close to a hundred years ago and they haven't been able to break from that situation. Oil, you know, being so much in demand internationally, uh, it's very hard to uh, avoid the problem that oil became, the place became oil dependent. The Padavesa, which is the national oil company, was theoretically nationalised back in the 1970s, but in reality, it it wasn't uh, in effect. The revenue was being siphoned off and was not coming into the government coffers for, for the use. And so Chavez effectively renationalised Petavesa in the first period of his of his government. But the problem is Petavesa itself is still, to some extent, a bureaucratic organisation, and there are still a lot of problems. There are, and part of the, I mean, we have to recognise that a major source of and possibly the major source of Venezuela's economic crisis is the sanctions imposed by Trump and by the US. They have made it very difficult for Venezuela to export its oil, also to get, and especially to get things like spare parts, the oil refineries and, and all that sort of thing. You know, this is a very serious problem which is not recognised internationally, the, the effect of the sanctions and how that has worsened the economy. But... At the same time, um, the Venezuelan leadership and the people themselves have attempted to build up um, food cooperatives, um, have attempted to re-establish agriculture. It is an irony that, you know, in a country like Venezuela, in some ways, agriculture had completely...
completely declined over the period of the domination of the oil economy so that they're actually struggling to get people to go back onto the land and establish um, agricultural cooperatives. That, that process was very much underway when we were living there in 2006. I think, you know, it's probably run into a lot of headwinds in the recent economic problems, but that's certainly the aim, to try to re-establish other industries and become less dependent on oil. How important has Cuba been to the revolution? Cuba, the Cuban revolution has played a critical role. First of all, politically, as an inspiration for the Bolivarian revolution, Cuba was among a very early supporter of, uh, of Chavez and understood the Bolivarian revolution when a lot of people didn't uh, see what it really meant. And, of course, the critical thing with Cuba was when Chavez said that he was going to establish the social missions for public health, he actually began by calling upon Venezuelan doctors to, to staff the uh, Mission Barrio Adentro clinics, um, but he got very few takers. <laughs> they preferred to remain in the middle-class areas and so on. So he turned to Cuba, and Cuba answered the call, and now there's hundreds of um, Cuban doctors staffing the, the clinics in Venezuela. They're playing a critical role in maintaining the public health infrastructure, and they have tremendous support among the population. I would point out that in, during one of the previous elections, when, at, at a time when the right wing actually ran in elections, they've been boycotting recent elections, but they ran and part of the platform they put forward was to expel the Cubans and send them, the Cuban doctors and send them back to Cuba. That caused an enormous backlash from the public. So they, they, uh, at the moment, I think they've kind of dropped that. Certainly they're not talking about it. They probably if they did, heaven forbid, ever manage to take power back, I'm sure that's what would happen. That would be a disaster for the public health systems. But at the same time, there are doctors coming from Brazil now, two and a half thousand of them. Yes, well, that process, there are doctors coming from other countries. I don't know what's going to happen with any support, any doctors coming from Brazil with the new extreme right-wing leader, Bolsonaro in um, in Brazil, I, I would say that, you know, that would be very much in question. And I also do want to point out that the Bolivarian University system, which is not just one university but a network, designed to give much more entry to higher education to uh, the poor people, they've been training up a lot of Venezuelan doctors. So, I mean, the plan of the government is to is to be in a position to not to be reliant on, on the Cuban doctors or overseas doctors. So I think there has been quite a lot of progress made in that situation over the last um, 15 years or so, but still a long way to go. And we've got to also recognise that while these missions are helping the poor, that there's still private hospitals, there's still private schools, there's still private universities, there's very big houses and gated communities still in Venezuela for the rich. Exactly. This is an ironical situation where you, you can't win one way or other. If the Venezuelan government makes a move to, to attack private property and, and reduce, you know, take on private property, well, of course, they get basically uh, attacked and assailed in the international media and, and by international politics. So at the same time, so in fact, the general discourse that we're getting from the international media, and I did want to emphasise that, there's a huge campaign against Venezuela involving 
most sections of the international media, even relatively liberal centre organisations like the ABC, SBS, The Guardian, everyone seems to be united in in, in criticising Venezuela. Um, and also, there's, for instance, the the statement being widely presented that, you know, it's a repressive regime and that there's no freedom of the press. Well, you know, the right-wing newspapers and TV stations are absolutely rampant. I mean, that's one thing you certainly notice when you go to Venezuela. It's like it's not much different to Australia. It's like the Murdoch press operating with these newspapers and, and TV stations. They're quite happy to assail the government and they even call for a coup. How would that go in Australia for one of the mainstream newspapers call for a, a military coup against the government? How would they go? Well, there's probably a debate, if anything, in Venezuela as to whether they have allowed these right-wing forces too much leeway. That is the debate that's, that's going on among the Bolivarian supporters. But I just wanted to really say something, Jan, about the, uh, the, the, this international media campaign and the, and the international political campaign against Venezuela, because I think this is critical to understanding what's going on. You know, every now and again you get a big article in the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age about the crisis, emphasizing the crisis in Venezuela, blah, blah. But it's totally one-sided that they don't give any indication of what's what's really happening on the ground and the causes of the problems that are faced in Venezuela, like the essentially the, the US-dominated coups. And the, the big issue right now is that there's an attempt to basically overthrow the Maduro government. It's, a, it's like a creeping coup that is taking place internationally, in Venezuela, right-wing governments, Colombia, Brazil, Chile and others are mounting a big campaign against Venezuela and from the White House, people like John Bolton have openly called for, for the overthrow of Maduro and called him an illegitimate government. We are reaching a very critical point, I think, and I think it's incumbent on people in the, in the progressive movement internationally to be aware of what's happening uh, and be ready to bond if a further escalation takes place. I do want to just mention that in a couple of days' time, on January 23rd, the opposition, the right-wing opposition, is planning an enormous rally in Caracas, and um, it is being seen as a potential flashpoint in this campaign. And, uh, yeah, we need to be aware that this is going on. If an escalation does take place, I think we should mobilise our forces to call for the recognition of the Maduro government, who was actually fairly elected, despite what's been said in the media. Uh, I think we have to, you know, turn our attention once again to Latin America and and see, you know, what is really happening over there. Meanwhile, Maduro has just begun his second time as president. What needs to be done to get the economy going, even with those sanctions on? What can the government do? Yes, well, that <laughs> that is the $64 question, uh, which I don't have the full answer to. I don't have, you know, expertise in the economics area. I think maybe rather than look at it from that point of view, I think that what has to happen is that the revolution itself needs to be, in a sense, relaunched. I think the question of popular power is critical. If they're going to overcome the problems of launched by the right wing, which is we've got to remember that what's going on, not only are the sanctions being imposed from the United States and elsewhere, but at home, these uh, right wing forces and, and the big business are 
staging boycotts and um, hoarding of goods. Uh, you know, every now and again they discover a warehouse, you know, which is full of toilet paper or or, or sugar or something like that, which has been basically hoarded in order to drive up the drive up the prices and create create shortages. So that, in fact, to a large extent, a lot of these goods are actually available. But, but they've been hoarded by the right wing and as to, uh, to actually force uh, shortages and cause uh, civil unrest. So the only way to tackle this is, is to relaunch the popular movement and gradually increase the amount of democracy, strengthen the communal councils, strengthen the levels of local government and the missions. Yes, it has to be admitted that there is a very bureaucratic, uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy and corruption in Venezuela. That has not been overcome. There are divisions in the government and there are some, you know, authoritarian tendencies which are, you know, not allowing full freedom of uh, operation for left-wing critics of the government. So there are a lot of people trying to push this process forward and, and there are divisions which are tending to hold it back. But, you know, I think we, looking at the situation from, from overseas, like in Australia... We can, you know, we can have our speculation about what needs to be done. We, our first duty, in my opinion, is to prevent the United States and the, their puppet regimes in Latin America from actually supporting a coup. I would point out, not only are we looking at the question of an internal coup, but which maybe even not be very likely, because the armed forces up until now have been pretty solidly behind the government. But there's a threat of invasion now that Brazil has a extreme right-wing government. Bolsonaro is, is sort of ramping up the rhetoric about, you know, there's a possibility of Brazil, you know, some militias from Brazil or, or, or even the military, and also Colombia, of course, um, staging provocations on the border. So Venezuela is now surrounded by right-wing governments, and um, it's extremely dangerous. Uh, it's quite a dangerous situation which we need to be aware of. You take into account all the forces and powers that have worked against the Bolivarian Revolution. It survived those years and it's still surviving, so it just shows that there's a lot that they've been able to do, that they've kept that support. Absolutely, and that's my, that's my message and the lesson that I learned from the time I was, I was living there. Last time I visited Venezuela would have been about five years ago, so I'm not, you know, I don't have the most in, recent information. I know. It's very clear just from watching and reading about it that, you know, that the economic problems have actually increased. But, you know, yes, it has survived. Maduro won the election, even though, you know, there's a discourse in the international media that it was illegitimate. The opposition chose to boycott. Actually, they didn't choose to boycott. They were ordered to boycott by Washington. There's plenty of evidence that they, some sections of the right-wing opposition were actually planning to run and they were ordered by Washington not to run. A couple of leaders of one section, you know, the opposition's totally divided, that's another problem for them, but one section did run, so there was a legitimate candidate against Maduro, but he ended up with 60% of the vote, something like, yeah, I think 6 million people or something like that vote. Uh, it's true that many people didn't vote and the, a lot of opposition supporters boycotted the election, but I don't know how strong the United States case can be against other governments when you find that in the US sometimes only 
less than well less than 40 percent of the population actually vote yeah for trump to and his supporters to claim that maduro is illegitimate is is pretty rich and then you have the pundits in the u.s claiming that russia interfered in the elections in the in the u.s how terrible yes exactly yes there is an element of extreme hypocrisy about that the u.s is routinely interfered in elections all over the world and still continues to do so. But even worse than that, they are you know, now setting up the grounds for international intervention in Venezuela. I, I should mention that most recently, the Organisation of American States and the, and the group called the Lima Group, which is really a collection of the right-wing governments, basically resolved to uh, not recognise Maduro as the new leader and in fact, they've taken a step further and actually recognised the, the Speaker of the National Assembly, a right-wing person called Juan Guaido. They've recognised him as an alternative head of state. Well, there's a very good interview with uh, Jorge Arieza, who's the, the Foreign Minister of Venezuela, with Amy Goodman on the on the Democracy Net program. He denounces. Uh, this and says that this Juan Guaido, no one even knows who he is, and now he's been allegedly made an alternative leader of Venezuela. Yeah, you know, we've got an incredible contradiction there. The US doesn't seem to worry too much about these things anymore. By the way, the new head of the Mexican government, AMLO, has dissented from that and has, has voted against this attempt to delegitimise the Maduro government. Well, we can only hope, Jim, that the demonstration on the 23rd of January doesn't descend into violence. Absolutely. I'm not sure what the tactics of the pro-Chester forces will be. What's happened very often in the past is that when the right wing has organised a rally, the Chavistas have organised a much bigger counter-rally. So I'm not sure if that's how they plan to do it. We certainly hope that violence does not break out and we certainly hope that there's no escalation of the attack on Venezuela into actual military or violent conflict. You know, I have confidence in the Venezuelan people. I know that despite the divisions that exist there, the majority still, you know, support the Bolivarian process. They still support uh, Maduro, despite the faults of the government and all the problems that the revolution faces, that it can survive. It has survived now for pretty much 20 years. The international so-called pink tide in Latin America has faced a big challenge in the last few years with changes of government from the progressive government of, um, or at least centre-left government that you had in Argentina, in Brazil, in Chile. You know, they've been replaced by openly right-wing governments. This Bolsonaro character in Brazil is extremely dangerous. He's attempting to set up uh, sort of a, a, an international united front of, of right-wing governments in Latin America to lead the campaign against Venezuela and the other progressive governments such as Bolivia, maybe even Mexico, El Salvador and Central America and so on. Yeah, the next period will be very critical in uh, determining what's going to happen in Latin America in the, in the uh, coming decade or so. Speaking as a person who's been involved in solidarity with the Latin American revolutions over many years, and in Australia we have a strong tradition of solidarity with Latin America, not only based on the fact that we have large communities of Latin American exiles from Chile, from El Salvador, and increasingly from other countries. I think now is the time to redouble our efforts and perhaps relaunch our solidarity campaign. I mean, there is already action taking, have taken place in Australia in support of the Brazilian people. 
against Bolsonaro because of the increasing attack on them, especially minorities. We should now also turn our attention back to Venezuela and and see that there is a, a really serious threat there of violence, of possible coups, provocation, and even the possibility of military action from the right-wing governments in Colombia and Brazil, all under the control, we have to realise this, totally under the control of the United States, which, of course, has always regarded Latin America as its backyard. It appears that the Trump administration is moving back to the traditional vision of controlling Latin America and deciding what's going to happen there. And, of course, they really want to get control of the oil in Venezuela with the energy crisis we're increasingly faced. They, they would like to get control, full control of the oil in Venezuela and be able to use it to help solve their own problems. Yeah, this is a call out to all progressive people in Australia to, you know, be ready for the call that we need to prepare for action to support the Venezuelan people and their revolution. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jan. And it was Jim Nekelvoy from Social... I'm pretty sure it's Socialist Alliance, but I, I might be picked up on that, but he's definitely a socialist activist and been working with Venezuela, taking tours to Venezuela for a number of years, solidarity tours, and also, as he said, looking after, seeking support for the other countries in Latin America, facing opposition from the United States they don't like countries to be independent that doesn't sit very well with the United States and thinking about um, Brazil after a few announcements we'll be hearing from two Brazilians now living in Australia talking about the, the past and what's happening in Brazil at the moment and their fears for the future This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurse Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1966. Every year, 3CR marks Invasion Day with special programming that gives voice to the ongoing struggle for land justice in this country. Stood up for justice, stood up for truth, stood up for indigenous... Our shows cover the real history of Australia, cross to local events and rallies around town and celebrate the survival and culture of Aboriginal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Abolish Australia Day. Tune into 3CR on Saturday, January 26 for coverage of the 2019 Invasion Day events and issues.
1985, civilian government was restored in Brazil after a 21-year-long military regime established after the 1964 coup d'etat. But elections in late 2018 resulted in the election of what many see as a fascist far-right president Jair Bolsonaro, described as a racist and a misogynist, a former army captain, who in 2016 in a radio interview spoke fondly of the military dictatorship, saying, quote, The dictatorship's mistake was to torture but not kill. So the question is, where to for Brazil? Today I'm speaking with two Brazilians now living in Australia, C. Aguilar, who is an Indigenous Brazilian teacher who grew up in a poor community of Belo Horizonte, and Lone Cardosa, communist and supporter of the Brazilian Socialist and Free Party Bolivarian tendency. They came into the studio a couple of days ago and we talked about the situation there at the moment, but I began by asking them to talk about an earlier period, the period of the military coup, and what their parents and family have told them about what it was like living during those years of the military regime. Yeah, my father, he was involved with uh, politics, and at some point he was arrested. I've been told he was lightly tortured because it was just common practice at that time. It was something that the police did like pretty much to anyone. Like it was, they never know if they would could get some information. So just uh, by so so they just would you know torture a little bit everyone. So maybe they would get something eventually. Like when someone was like uh, more politicized and and stuff. So yeah, I, I heard that and. More my father's uh, stories because uh, my mother she she lived in the countryside and there was never much about it there. But yeah, m- might not have been born if if my dad was more involved, because all the the people that he, they went to more like active stuff like guerrilla stuff they all died so. So my dad, he didn't go, and, and I am here today. <laughs> I was born in 1981, so there was still going to dictatorship at the time. But we were living in the countryside in a very small village. We started using electricity when I was already 10 years old. So at that, at that period, we were living there. We didn't hear much, but I remember my mom and my dad telling stories about what they heard about it, about people being tortured in the jungle when they found them, the the revolutionaries ones, they were probably, they were trying to hide in the jungle and when they found them, what they were doing, so she should tell these stories, but only tell because some, yeah, have heard about, not that she has seen something what about growing up post the dictatorship? Where that's were you living then? Um, as I told you, we were living in a very poor city, and uh, then we were peasants. <laughs> yes, on the land, uh, not on the land because there was the village we were living there. But then, uh, my parents they were working some lands around there. 
And uh, we moved to the city in 89, 90s. So we didn't see much about it because you, you didn't have any contact with politics at this time, you know. Education? Public school. I studied in, in public schools and uh, not much about this, like you mean talking about the politics there in, in, in school? No. Only maybe in 95, 92. I remember from 92 because of the eco 92 that happened in, in Rio. So there was a big event. And uh, then we talk about policies at, at this time. And uh, when color was uh, impeachment, yeah, we were really involved. But then I was like 11, 12, uh, yeah. There's not a lot of teaching about recent history in Brazil and about the dictatorship. That is not very debated or discussed. So uh, th there's a lot to really settle, and uh, like the society didn't face that yet. And I think that's very clear, and it's even clearer now. Too painful. Like, uh, because you have a divided. Uh, People, there are people supporting something that it's against the existence of other people. So how how does that go in a society? It's it's something that brings just divisiveness. It, it, it keeps there somewhere within within the people. You know, it's like an issue never solved. What was it like growing up for you? Where were you? What part of Brazil? I was always in like a big city, which is called Belo Horizonte, but is the third biggest after Rio and Sao Paulo. It's not very known outside of Brazil. My parents were public servants. I was like middle class and like never really uh, getting to know the reality of most people in Brazil because it's, it's pretty different, the, the reality of the majority of the Brazilians. And I was always inside this little middle class bubble and it's it's quite different from a country like Australia. It, it may be even hard to understand. Like it's basically different worlds uh, in one country. So yeah, we are a proof of this because we basically was were born in the same city, but with uh, reality completely different. And now we were together, so uh, we were we, always comparing. We're not born. We were raised in the yeah, same city. Yeah, raised because we were born in different states. But then you always keep. Comparing, like I always tell him, what, what world, where do you live in? Because in my world, it doesn't exist. It's not like this. So it's, you have yeah. a different it's point. It's really of a different way of looking yeah. at the world, and and you know, it, it, it showed up very clearly in these last elections, I think, because I think that the opposition of Bolsonaro, Haddad, and all his campaign hit every time in the wrong spots. Every everything that he said was, to me, was pretty much looking at the middle class and uh, talking to them and never really reaching the world of m most people, like what matters to them. Because when you, s to, to most people, like Serling was bringing up, the dictatorship was not that big of a deal. They never knew mm -hmm. somebody who was tortured. Mm -hmm. Like it didn't hit them in that way, in the way of political oppression. Like what hits them, most people, is economic oppression. It's like what happens in their ordinary lives regarding jobs and how they're going to survive, basically. That's what they're worried about. 
I think and the propaganda for these elections from Hadap uh, side were turned to the dictatorship side of political oppression, trying to put fear on people that that oppression is going to... And yes, people from middle class are going to feel that. But most people, they, they don't really care if they're going to get a job. You know, if it's with dictatorship or without dictatorship, doesn't matter to them. You know, whoever can fix this mess, it, it, it's great to them. No? How did you break out of that middle class bubble to become a communist? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, honestly, how can I say? I, I was never very well fit into that bubble, per se. I think, honestly, all my relationships were always outside that bubble. So I, I was just never really fit into that. But I, I cannot say that I was always very aware as I am today and a communist. Like, I became it because I, I really had a lot of free time. And I so I dove in a lot of stuff and started studying, learning. And after I learned a lot, like, I, I started become aware and I became a communist. Did that cause problems within your family? Yes, it does, actually, because my family is not right-wing at all. But they are just like pretty much everybody from inside that bubble, like the left-wing bubble, which really cannot communicate too much with the majority of people, as I was saying, because like they just don't comprehend their problems. So it causes problems because I tend to see through the lies and the propaganda of the Workers' Party, PT, and I'm sometimes too clear about it it's always it's always a reason of conflict when i'm too clear about the 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 things that i do wrong and you know other people prefer to believe on those things so when we moved to the big city to belo horizonte we basically lived in a community that you called kind of favela but not in that way like in rio still a very poor neighborhood and a really huge neighborhood so Basically, people, they are like my family and uh, what I, I was doing, we're trying sur- to survive. So you, we don't have any I- ideological thoughts because we basically are survive. So our, our reality is so hard and uh, the, nobody stopped thinking about politics. This last year, since 2000, I can tell, 2013, there was more people aware of this because of TV and uh and everybody only talks about this, and uh, the division is so clear and that you have to take one side and you have to learn more about it, but it's not, like, organized or... Yeah, but since the impeachment, basically, anyone has mm-hmm. to take a side. It, it's you, impossible not to take yeah. a side after the events of 2016. Yeah, uh, after this event, like, everybody divide even families, friends, and so my, my reality is... Is different from this. As I told you, we were trying to survive. Nobody was like you, stopping and talking about this. When you say life was difficult, in what yeah. way? In a way, like uh, I can tell you about my surrounding, my neighbors, my students, because I I used to be a teacher in Brazil for maybe 12 years. So, like my students, my my neighbors, my my family. They work like 12, 14 hours per day and then get home, they watch TV. So what they know is what comes from TV. And uh, one of the reasons they really hate PT, the worker part, because 
uh, all the news they were only talking about Lula, 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 and the PT, PT, and the scandals, scandals, corruption. But uh, so this is basically their life. They work like a 12, 14 hours per day. On when they get home at night, they watch the news and they hate wh- who they want them to hate and. Uh, And that's it, basically. So nobody goes more than this. And when uh, they go, it's about... Because we people are so passionate about everything and anything. So the the same way we are, have this passion about soccer, for example, now we have about politics. So it's like uh, two soccer team, you know? And uh, then... Uh, So everybody now shock about this because it's like this. Or, ah, you are left, uh, we are left wing, I'm right wing, so I'm Bolsonaro, and you are Lula, so you are my enemy. And uh, now everybody talks about this, but in a very superficial way, you know. One is Bolsonaro today, and uh, after he disappointed him, uh, tomorrow he can be another another one because it's really superficial. It's not like uh, something too deep, and they really have one uh, ideological line and side. Yeah, it's more like a reaction to things. So PT spent 13 years in power in the presidency, the Workers' Party. So it's very hard not to take them as the paradigm of power. Like, they were there. There are people that were born when PT was in government and they're already like teenagers. So symbolically they represent the power a lot of people think they are subverting the system by voting on Bolsonaro I feel that like they it's like a, a rebellion is a way to be a rebel it, it really in, in in a twisted way sometimes since Bolsonaro uses that to call the establishment Marxist or socialist or whatever it's kind of similar to like Trump's campaign, if the establishment is socialism, then, therefore, socialism is bad. At the same time, be an outsider and against socialism. So it, you build a campaign on that and sometimes you, you, you collect fruits. And, of course, Bolsonaro didn't come from nowhere. He's been around for quite a long, yeah. long time, hasn't he? Did people identify with him before he took up this position or... He stood for stood for presidency. Did people know who he was? No, like he spent uh, decades in the lower chamber of deputies. And he was always just a small he was a congressman for 28 years. Yeah, he was a despicable figure, a puppet from the dictatorship, one of those excrements yeah. from a previous regime. Never an important figure at all. But what happened is that after the impeachment and all that we're describing, like the country got so divided and people were talking about it. There was a vacuum for someone, a, a political vacuum for someone who would criticize the system. Like, and Bolsonaro occupied that position. Like, was He monopolized that because nobody from the left came up to, to point at the system and, and say that the problem is the way businesses run as usual. The problem is not outside normality. The problem is normality itself. Bolsonaro was the only one who did it, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he was the one who won. Nobody really knew him out like in the mainstream. Like he was unknown figure until these events, you know, a few years ago. Like until three, 
four years ago and you out everything started happening and he became known he was known at, at the before this as a, a clown basically because he was the congressman that uh used to say absurd things like probably you have heard about uh he saying that uh, the congresswoman who wouldn't uh, rape her because she didn't deserve it. So he was a polemic person, uh, but like a clown. Nobody never uh, took him serious. And nobody, if uh, when he mentioned that he w maybe could run for presidency, that was like a joke. All right, okay. So, but then he built all his campaign on fake news, and uh, he used a very dirty way to to get people and he really got people he really had his followers and uh, they did everything like yeah after the impeachment after uh, 2013 after he had told he took his place on this gap he could saw as anti-establishment guy and of course that gap was widened because of Lula going to jail can you talk about Lula and also Dilma and the yeah. impeachment yeah it's interesting that you brought this uh, I had the feeling that Bolsonaro was going to win exactly the day that Lula went to jail and I sent this message to everybody I think Bolsonaro will win because it's like there is nothing else there what are people going to look at and feel hope <laughs> like they look at PT the workers party they see that they know where that will go they know exactly what that is. It's nothing new and it's something that they deeply want to avoid. Like they really, really, and it's reasonable for them because situation is not good at all. So Bolsonaro was the only thing that could bring a, a chance of change, you know. Lula's imprisonment was not remarkable just because he went to jail and he was persecuted but the way he chose to deal with that the day he was arrested on his speech he was very very clear he sent clear messages and he said that I do not believe in revolutions if I did I would not have built a party and he also said that he believes in the judicial system so basically the, the whole system which is in, in, in a very 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 deep crisis, the system that is basically falling apart before everyone's eyes. He's like putting his trust and his faith in this system. And now the lesson of Lula, I think, is the lesson for the left, is that we, you cannot just try to play with uh, the destiny of a country. You either are with the people, and if you are, you are all on it. There is no like halfway over the fence thing regarding politics and people's destiny, the life of, of, a, of a country. So what happened with Lula is what happens when you think you can, you know, play with history, play with the history of a country like Brazil, a very oppressed country, historically massacred, and, and you can get away with that. No. You know, it, eventually it will turn out against you. You either go all in from the beginning or you better just stay out. What about Dilma? Nobody ever found a shred of evidence against her. Her impeachment, it followed all the rituals of legality 
but the substance was ridiculous. The charge against her is like budget and mismanagement. Is something that every president before her had done. Every state government always do. It was a, a very clear pretext. And you can clearly see the, the new republic regime trembling because like all that happened was, had a lot of political costs for everyone involved. Juma, she tried to run for senator in a very weird fashion. She didn't get elected, although on all uh, until the very last week of before the elections, all polls showed her in first place, and then she doesn't get elected. Uh, yeah, that happened with also like three more senators, like Eduardo Suplicy, Roberto Requião. They had a similar situation, like they were about to win a place in the Senate, but then in the elections, like weird people got elected. Unknown people like the government of my state got huge tons of votes. And it was a very different, unusual election, this. Where do you see the influence of the United States in that election? Well, it's clear that uh, the the campaign of Bolsonaro was very much influenced. And it's, it's not something they try to hide. Like, uh, there is a picture that the son of Bolsonaro posted of him with Steve Bannon. Uh, they met and some things are clearly similar. Like, for instance, what I mentioned about trying to portray the establishment as somewhat Marxist, like tr- creating this uh, so-called cultural Marxist thing. So it, it's like a, a win-win because if the establishment is Marxist and if, it's, and if you are against Marxism, then you are at the same time against the establishment and you are not social. So... Anyway, it's like a, a twist, but it, all this, it's only possible because you have a very uneducated population. Like for years and years, for, for decades, they decimated with the critical thinking in the country. Since the dictatorship, they persecuted all the intellectuals, the great people in the country. They had to flee really like amazing, wonderful uh, historians, intellectuals that really could contribute a lot. And since then, I think... Very systematically, they have been destroying any critical thinking in the country. And now the result is this. And you've been listening to C. Aquila and Leon Carosa from Brazil speaking about um, the situation there at the moment and prospects maybe for the future. If you'd like to hear more about their views and what the future might hold and understanding and combating the rise of reaction in Brazil. They will both be at Solidarity Salon, Salon tomorrow night. That's um, 588 or 580 Sydney Road in Brunswick. There is um, dinner from 6.30 and then discussion begins at 7 and you'll be able to hear more about what their thoughts are their experiences and their thoughts for the future. And on the program next week, I'll play the second part of that interview that I recorded yesterday here at 3CR. So I do hope that um, you can go and see them, talk to them. They'd be lovely to speak to more people and let the world know what is happening in Brazil at the moment. That's about all I have for today, but... Dumbo Law is coming up in about one minute's time. 
So I might go out with another message and I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.